Our next guest is Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He served for 22 years as Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth and is a renowned religious leader, philosopher, and award-winning author. His most recent book is Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times. Welcome, Rabbi Lord. <laughs> Stephanie, Lord it's Rabbi. Just, great, just great to be with you. What does your wife call you, Rabbi or Lord? Uh, Lord, basically. <laughs> <laughs> During lockdown, we celebrated our golden wedding. I have to say that I wouldn't have been a rabbi or a lord without Elaine. That is on the record. We, we have that on tape. That is perfect. <laughs> and you make it clear in the book. So, so let's jump right into the book. You spend about 250 pages detailing very movingly and eloquently so much that is broken about our contemporary world from social media that atomize us and take us from a mindset of we to a mindset of I to a culture of outsourcing that robs people of, of basic income to sort of politics of, of contempt and, and division. It's a sort of really profound and profoundly depressing catalog of so many ills. And yet you end the book sort of insisting that there is a rosy future ahead and that it depends on our ability to rally around this notion of morality. So explain to us kindly. Give us reason to be hopeful. The most gloomy and doom ridden of all Israel's prophets was Jeremiah. And yet, if you remember, when his cousin says to him, your uncle died and there's this field in Israel and are you going to redeem it? Are you sure we're going to come back? And he redeems Potter's field. And then he delivers, especially in chapter 31, the most hope-filled vision of the Jewish people ever given. It's just stunning. I found in general, the prophets of Israel were all prophets of doom, but also prophets of hope. So the question was, how does this work? There was a professor of English literature, George Steiner. George Steiner drew a very interesting distinction between a prediction and a prophecy. He said, if a prediction comes true, it's succeeded. If a prophecy comes true, it's failed. And basically, that's what prophets did. They warned in order to avoid. They said, guys, this is going to happen to us unless, unless we change our ways, unless we come back to the people we ought to be. And therefore, I think you're reading the book as a prediction. But actually, it's a prophecy. And so the doom and gloom is all there in order to generate activity, which generates hope. And I think that's one of the most uh, original ideas Judaism ever gave the world. In some ways, Rabbi, this is a return to your original vocation, which is you were trained as a philosopher before you decided you wanted to be a rabbi, right? Yeah. I was charmed to see that one of the great influences for you has been the virtue ethicist Alistair McIntyre. And McIntyre basically thinks that there is no morality outside of community, that that communities are the the structures that sustain morality. It's not about laws, it's about people. And you sort of begin with people and their practices. That has always struck me as, in some ways, a perfect argument for Judaism, right? Which starts with this web of practices and says, look, you need a group of 10 people to get together and do this stuff. 
And out of that, they'll generate morality. And you are, I think, quite careful not to put down Christianity, but you also do say (laughs) that the big difference between you and McIntyre is that you have some hope and he doesn't. So is there something particularly Jewish about your hope or your optimism at the end? I mean, you know, Christians, I have always found actually gloomier, though, for a different reason, which is their emphasis on original sin, which Jews tend not to talk about as much. But, you know, what then is your specifically Jewish prescription for morality? I knew Alastair McIntyre. I loved Alastair McIntyre. Alastair McIntyre was a Catholic. He believed in original sin. He believed ultimately, I think, that the the denouement, the telos of human happiness is beyond this life. If you read any Catholic, if you read the novelist Graham Greene, you read anyone, any Catholic story will end sadly, very often with betrayal. And that's the Catholic view. And I think it's an important voice. I used to learn from Alastair McIntyre not to be naive in my optimism. And he was kind enough to um, take my work seriously, although he fully recognized that my Jewish faith was more hopeful. Well, Rabbi, it is out of tremendous respect for you and admiration for your work that, that I want to push this point a bit further. I want to read to you a few lines from the book. You write, to become moral, we have to make a commitment to some moral community and code. We have to make a choice to forego certain choices. We have to choose the right restraints. And having fallen in love with some moral principle or ethical ideal, we have to build a structure of behavior around it for the moment when love falters, which struck me as a very sort of elegant and eloquent prescription but at the same time also as oddly divorced from the very notion of faith and its centrality, the sort of transcendent idea that the source of morality is elsewhere, right, doesn't seem to be reflected in these lines. It's almost like any kind of ethical communal purpose, if arranged just correctly, would do. You're absolutely right. And let me now explain why. America still has strong heartlands of religion. Europe doesn't. It doesn't have them at all. And I wrote morality to try and make a little difference in Britain and in America. So I had to make some hard decisions, as I've had to do from time to time. Many of my books, and I've written over 30 of them, are just specifically for Jews. They're about Jewish ideas and Jewish texts. But I reckon that morality had to touch people, whether they were Jewish or not, whether they were religious or not, and so on. You know, you say, well, America still has these heartlands of faith. But what's so interesting to me, Rabbi, is I've traveled a lot in England where, as you are the first to point out, highly secularized, right? I mean, it's really hard outside of a few Jewish neighborhoods and there's some little enclaves of Catholicism and there are some evangelical Brits, but basically it's an entirely secularized land, right? And yet a lot of the Brits I've met have seemed better at being sort of modest and self-sacrificing and abstemious. I mean, I remember visiting Mary Midgley up in Newcastle, right, who was a friend of your graduate advisor, Philip Afoot, one of the great philosophers. And Mary Midgley was basically living in an unfurnished, I mean, she, it was so British, you know, she had a teapot and she had a few old threadbare sofas and then she had a lot of books and there was just no luxury. And this was one of the great philosophers of our time. And I see that again and again in England, that people seem willing to live more lightly on the land. They seem willing to live with just less junk. 
Now, in America, the classic American story, it seems to me, is the deeply, deeply religious person who also lives in a totally disgusting McMansion, you know, 5,000 square feet and a hot tub on every floor. So, I mean, I don't know. It's It strikes me that the Brits have a kind of self-sacrificing. I mean, these are the people who did Dunkirk. It's, it seems to me you are carrying on without religion, but with some loyalty to country and crown and sort of a higher purpose than just buying stuff. Or am I just idealizing your country? No, no. You know, the person who was most lyrical about this was my undergraduate supervisor, Roger Scruton. Roger was the great poet laureate of tradition as such. He was a Burkean conservative. He wrote in a book of his called England, An Elegy, that um, England is home. And in a home, things are there because they're there. (laughs) So you kind of live with this centuries of tradition, of habitual ways of doing things. And you don't have to create security around yourself by a big house or lots of possessions. You just don't. That security is there in the air, it's there in the culture. And that culture does actually bind people together so that what, if you can, you know, touch the right chord, you can generate the weave from within the culture. It's partly because England is very old in comparison with the States, and it's partly because it's very small in comparison with the States. So, Rabbi, you know, you say early on in the book that you're hopeful for the future and you cite statistics about Gen Z, this idea that actually the the youngs today, the youth are more maybe moral and altruistic than, you know, the millennials and Gen X. And you detail interactions you've had with young people throughout your work that actually lead you to be really hopeful. So I'm curious if you could pass on some of that hope for us and why and and how you see technology as relating to all this. These young people who communicate almost primarily online yet are still good and moral people. The reason I say this is because two years ago, I did a five-part series for the BBC called Morality. And we did something very interesting. We got some of the world's biggest experts on all these subjects. And in order for that not to be dominated by experts, we got 17 and 18-year-olds from four of our schools, two in Manchester, two in uh, London. And they interacted with the experts. In other words, they listened to the conversations that I had with the experts, and then they gave their own views. And um, unanimously, the people who reviewed the programs, and we had experts like, you know, Mike Sandell, Robert Putnam, Jordan Peterson, um, Gene Twenge, Stephen Pinker, and so on. We had everyone. But according to everyone, the stars were the children, whom they found more articulate, more thoughtful, more morally profound than the experts. I found that actually a very life-changing experience because It's very easy to dismiss youth culture with its social media, with its superficiality. And I suddenly realized spending time with these four schools that actually young people were reflecting very deeply about these things and they were willing to make personal commitments to help bring them about. And so if if a young person is, is listening now or not so young person and particularly people who do not feel deeply rooted in the observance part of whatever faith tradition they may come from. Are there practices that you could recommend or shifts in a way of thinking or something by way of transformation? We're right on the cusp of the Jewish New Year. Something that you could tell a listener, look, if you do nothing but X, Y, or Z, you already are on the right path. For five years from 2013 to 2018, I taught at NYU as well as Yeshiva University. NYU is a very varied campus. 
And they have a wonderful rabbi there, Rabbi Yehuda Sana. One of the things that um, Yehuda Sana did with the students, and it was called the For Many Institute, is that he got every one of them to take on a personal project helping other people. One of my students decided the people sleeping on the streets, the thing they most needed was socks to keep them warm. So her project was gathering hundreds of thousands of socks and distributing them to people. Yehuda Sana, once a, a year, would take a group of Jewish and Muslim students to some disaster area, like, you know, the, the wreckage after Hurricane Katrina, and they would spend a week working to help, you know, reconstruct houses that had been destroyed and so on. To my mind, the whole business of developing a moral sense is a business of doing first and foremost. Having the experience, either on your own or better still with others, of going out to people in need and making a difference to their lives. That is something that's absolutely transformative. You had in America a program called, um, what was it called, Teach for America? My wife did it after college. Fantastic. I had the privilege of sitting with a young man called David Miliband and persuading Tony Blair to institute an identical program in Britain, Teach First. So that is what I say to people. Go out and do something, and you will be transformed by it. You know, um, the, the most important thing about the moral life is not what you achieve by it, but what you become by it. Right now, there is a possibility that could not exist at any other time for a real program of national service in Britain and America. You have an entire generation of 18 and 19-year-olds who are not going to get jobs. You have an enormous amount of work that has to be done. Just consider test and trace, for instance which needs around 300,000 people in the States. To actually connect those young people with a year or two of national service would transform them, transform America, and uh, rescue a generation from hopelessness. So speaking of rescuing a generation from hopelessness, you have a, another book out as well, because you would not be Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs if you do not have multiple books. One of the books is by the rabbi, the other is by the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so this other book is Life-Changing Ideas, a weekly reading of the Hebrew Bible. And I'm really curious to hear you tell us a little bit about that book, because it's basically really making the Parsha relevant to our lives today. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, uh, having given sermons for many, many years and having written Covenant of Conversation for many years, I discovered that the thing that really touches people is, can I apply this to my life? Um, and I just thought, well, one way of doing that is to look at Judaism as a system of ideas and take one idea and uh, just chase it through for each parasha. We ran this as a series a couple of years ago. And nothing we have done has had that kind of response. People seem to love it. So we've decided to bring it out as a book. And let me just say this. On Yom Kippur, we spend half our time saying, you know, I'm guilty, I betrayed, I stole, I robbed. For the sin we have committed. We go right through the alphabet there twice. What on earth are we doing with all these confessions? I suddenly realized that what Yom Kippur is saying is, on this holiest day of the year, we stand before God and we say, Almighty, 
I am not going to blame anyone else. What I did, I did. And please forgive me. The atonement, the confession of Yom Kippur is Judaism's vaccine against a victim culture. Jews were victims in generation after generation for the better part of a thousand years. And yet never, except maybe for a few moments on Tisha B'Av, did they say they did this to us. Nowhere in the Torah do we turn to the Egyptians and say, you did this to us. Judaism became a religion of personal responsibility, a religion that said, I blame no one else. And that is the basic idea behind the confession on Yom Kippur. And I regard that as an extraordinary, extraordinary idea. Very, very rare, very unusual. On a very related note, Yom Kippur is almost upon us, as is Rosh Hashanah. And you could bet that this being an election year, we would hear at least a few, if not many, many of our rabbis use this moment to deliver sermons that are in part, or in some cases in large, politically oriented. Now, a while ago, you issued a warning calling on rabbis not to mix politics and religion, not to use the pulpit as an opportunity to sort of adjudicate unearthly matters, which is a statement that I happen to personally very strongly agree with, but which nonetheless generated a tremendous amount of criticism. Could you tell us a little bit about why you feel this way? Yeah, this came up in a conversation just like this. I was asked a political question, and then I replied, I do not mix religion and politics. It's actually a fundamental error to try and do both. The basic separation of religion and state on which the United States is built takes its origin from Montesquieu in L'Esprit des Lois and the separation of powers. And it is my view that the first statement in history of the separation of powers is the Hebrew Bible. You have the king, you have the high priest, and you have the prophet. The king is not the high priest. The high priest is not the king. And both are subject to the moral criticism of the prophet. Now, this is revolutionary beyond revolutionary. Read Michael Walzer of Princeton, his book In God's Shadow. He explains that this idea of kingship in the Hebrew Bible is absolutely unique because in every other ancient civilization, in, to this day in Britain, the head of state is the head of religion. And for the head of state not to be the head of religion, as in the case in Judaism, is the first ever separation of politics, i.e. the king, and religion, i.e. the high priest. So anyone who um, mixes religion and politics, I think, has not understood the nature of Judaism. Does that mean that anyone actually acts the way I argue they ought to act? No, they don't. It, I found it quite shocking the degree to which the pulpit was used in America for political purposes. Is it different in England? Are rabbis there less likely on the left and the right to use the pulpit for political purposes? In England, I was chief rabbi. <laughs> so you put a stop to that. <laughs> I put a stop to it. You were the head of religion. It's a um, misuse of the pulpit. So let me play the part of the progressive rabbi in the United States who feels that there is a Torah injunction to love the stranger whom they read in all their sincerity as the, the immigrant. 
and then sees the power of the state thwarting their ability to welcome the stranger, the immigrant, and feels that Torah is telling them to act in the only effective way that they feel they can act, which is to take a political position. I mean, they and 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 similarly, right? You would have Zionists in the pulpit who would say. You know, if I am truly of Am Yisrael and I love my fellow people Israel, how can I not speak out about the Iran deal or what have you? I mean, they it's it's easy to see how on both the left and the right, rabbis can feel genuinely called by Torah to speak to contemporary politics. Well, first of all, there's a fundamental difference between speaking about morality and speaking about politics or speaking about society on the one hand and the state on the other. For heaven's sake, I spoke about uh, loving the stranger. I marched with people on it. Uh, I dealt with all these things. These things were never party political. I never, ever engaged in anything that was party political. Many, many, many times I was asked by specific political parties to speak at this gathering or that gathering or the other gathering. And I said, of course I will, so long as the other parties are represented. And by and large, they agreed. The point is this. There is an extraordinarily wise document, I think the finest work of political philosophy in modern times, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And at the heart of that book, he says something absolutely shattering, life-changing. You know, he had expected, coming from France, where religion had power but no influence, and he came to America where religion had no power, so he certainly expected religion to have no influence, and found the opposite, that religion was hugely influential. He called it the first of America's political institutions. He spent a long time studying, why is this? Why is religion so influential in America? And he discovered that ministers of religion never spoke politics from the pulpit. He asked the ministers, why don't you speak politics from the pulpit? And they replied, because politics is divisive. And if we spoke politics from the pulpit, we would be divisive too. We prefer to be a unifying force in American life, and therefore we practice restraint and do not speak politics from the pulpit. Now, everyone, I think, should be made to read democracy in America, because it is an incredibly far-seeing work. I don't know if people realize what happens once you go down that road of speaking politics from the pulpit. The first thing you do is you turn politics into a religion. The second thing you do is that you religionize politics. The highest value in politics, without which you can never make peace, is compromise. But compromise is the ultimate sin in religion. So once you religionize politics, you absolutize differences, and the end result is that you divide a country into two. Now, if that is not the current state of the United States, what exactly is? I used to regularly sit uh, with the four prime ministers during my time, with John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and David Cameron. I even wrote books for them. But it was always on morality, never, ever, ever about politics. And they respected that, and they never, ever asked me to support them on a party political issue. And, and the result was that I was doing what I think religious leaders ought to do. 
And that is stay moral, but don't be political. Do you feel that's what the Queen has done in her role as head of the Church of England? Oh, you cannot believe how good the Queen is at this. You know, she won't say anything in case it's divisive. Oh, but she smiles and she has wonderful corgis. Uh, she's terrific. Yes. She understands it completely. We used to talk about this a lot with Prince Charles. We used to have lots of sessions together and he was often tempted into controversial areas. And so we, we would actually sit and study what controversial areas you can enter into as a future monarch and what you can't. And it's, it really, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's not a simple thing. It needs careful evaluation, but I'm really, really seeing the United States suffering for what has been the case for a long, long period, turning politics into a religion. What did you keep Charles out of? What did you warn him away from? I can't tell you that. <laughs> what did you urge him into? I can't tell you that either. <laughs> so here's my last question. I've been very borderline obsessed with the question of English Jews. For a while, I was reading a lot of memoirs of British rock stars, entertainers, and so forth. And I found that whenever a Jew entered their story, whether an agent or a lawyer or a record producer, they would always say so-and-so, a typical East End Jew, or you know, so-and-so, a typical you know, Whitehall Jew. They would always point out the person's Judaism, which is not something you would see in American books. It was obviously better than the fact that Agatha Christie always had an evil Jew lurking somewhere who didn't end up the murderer, but kind of threw the suspicion off the murderer. But through your literature, it does seem that the Jew is more exotic in England than in the United States, where we're sort of one immigrant group among many. Do you feel like you're more exoticized as a Jew over there than when you're in the US? There's no question. America, number one, has 20 times as many Jews as we have. Number two, America is a nation of immigrants. That's how it defines itself. Jews are no more outsiders than, than anyone else. So in the literature, a tradition grew up. You know, you'll find it in uh, Fagin and Charles Dickens. You'll find it in a number of Victorian novelists of the Jew as exotic, as sharp practicing and, and so on. And then, of course, you get to the 1920s and 30s, the Agatha Christie moment, a horrendous moment. You get Evelyn Waugh, you get T.S. Eliot. It was kind of in the air. It was kind of taken for granted. I don't kind of see that now because Jews are not the most conspicuous outsiders. Very much not. I think they're a little bit better established. There are at least 80 of us in the House of Lords, for instance, which is a lot of Jews, you know. Wow. It's a good place to have a mincha, you know. I've never come across this but it has appeared from time to time, especially in very recent years. You know, we've had some, some bad moments. You know, before we let you go, I would like to know, you know, the high holidays are, as Liel said, fast approaching. I mean, do you have something to get us through these very, very strange times when people maybe won't be able to do what they normally do, won't be able to congregate with their fellow congregants? You know, they, they might be doing things at home. Do you have any wisdom to offer us on these strange times of self-reflection? The importance of Rosh Hashanah seems to me to chime precisely with where we are. I mean, the pandemic has been about this threat to life, this invisible threat to life that's gone worldwide. We can't see it. We're not sure that we can guard against it. We're conscious of it the whole time. And all of a sudden, life has been something that we don't take for granted. Rosh Hashanah is when we begin saying the fourfold prayer, Zachreinu Lechaim, remember us for life. 
Melech Hafez Bechaim, King who delights in life. Because Venu Bechaim, a writer in the Book of Life, for your sake, God of life. Rosh Hashanah was always the time when I have tried to say, Rabbana Shalom, Almighty God, I come before you with my account of what I have done this past year, what I feel I ought to do next year, and why I believe. I hope you will write me in the Book of Life. I think it is an immense moment of self-reflection, which is going to be all the more possible for us if we're actually not sitting in a crowded synagogue where there's a hubbub of noise and we can hardly concentrate on the prayers. I think Rosh Hashanah is all about where are we in life? Where did we hope we would be? And what are we going to do in the coming year? And of course, um, Yom Kippur. You know, there is a, an English writer, Alain de Botton. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've done lots of public conversations with him. And he brought out a book called Religion for Atheists. And in it, he writes, Yom Kippur is such a good day, it's a shame. It only happens once a year. Why does Alain love Yom Kippur? Because it's a day in which you apologize, in which you probably always knew you should, but would never get around to it without there being a date in the diary. And that, I think, is what you have to do. And that is a phone call. It's a whatever it is. But I think to think of all the people that you might have hurt, might have ignored, might have something or other. And just before Rosh Hashanah, do those apologies and try and heal those relationships because the other person will feel better, you will feel better, and you will know that a certain human healing has taken place because of that holy day. Amen to that. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, thank you so much for being with us on Unorthodox. Our listeners can get all the books we are talking about today and more at rabbisachs.org. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. 